You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup, you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Consider supporting Archaeosoup on Patreon for as little as a dollar per month. Link available in the video description. Hello, Rebecca Rag Sykes. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, and in particular, it's a pleasure to have someone who I can sort of nail down a little bit about the Neanderthals. <laughs> they are tricky. <laughs> um, they are tricky. They are tricky. And, and the, the, first, well, first of all, actually, can you just introduce yourself, what you're affiliated with and what you, what you do, as it were? Yeah, um, I'm an honorary fellow at the University of Liverpool mm. and also um, at the University of Bordeaux, where I did my uh, postdoc. Um, so I was in academia uh, for a while and I've kind of sagged slightly out but staying slightly in um and yes so i have uh, my first book um is out it was out in august so <laughs> it is very exciting kindred kindred uh, neanderthal life love death and art and and it's precisely this sort of thing that, that i wanted to get someone on to talk about because uh, I, I was explaining to you off camera and i've explained to people at home several times uh, over the years that there are there are two topics i tend to skirt on this channel uh topic number one stonehenge the moment you say anything anything current about Stonehenge, there's a new theory the following week or the following month. Uh, or, for example, a whole new half, you know, one and a half mile wide monument has been discovered, for example, recently. <laughs> so that, that's really hard to be definitive about. And the second one is Neanderthals. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll just briefly explain why, because you may, you may be able to relate to this in so much as, uh, for me, Neanderthals have always been uh, brimming with potential. Mm. And it's always felt a little bit as though uh, you you are sort of forced in conventional conversations to decide are they or were they brutal, knuckle-dragging simpletons or were they essentially like us but somehow also dramatic evolutionary failures. And that, 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 that kind of conversation, it's really hard to have and to justify uh, and to, to, to have current uh, because there's so much being done so much research being done on the Neanderthals damn archaeology always finding new stuff oh, new stuff new things about the past can't we just put it in a book and be done so um so I guess first and foremost I suppose for you why Neanderthals what what drew you to them um I I, I kind of I don't know I came sort of to the conclusion that it would be Neanderthals I was really going for only probably um, during my master's, actually, um, at Southampton uh, Centre of, of uh, Archaeology of Human Origins, there's a fantastic uh, place. But I knew before that that I was really interested in the Paleolithic mm-hmm. and 
you know ice age pleistocene worlds um and as i as i do sort of give a shout out in the book that is partly down to reading gene owl at a formative age <laughs> as mm-hmm, uh, as mm-hmm. you know many other archaeologists will admit it seems to be the way doesn't it <laughs> aside from the story um i love the the detail that she went into in describing the Pleistocene world, um, all of the animals and the plants, but also much more about, you know, her considering when she first wrote those books and you know she began them in the 80s or was it 79? I can't even remember. It's it was a long time ago. And um, you know, the depth of detail that she manages, considering that sort of our evidence for things like plant use was pretty minimal back then Mm. it's 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 held up to some extent you know Mm. she she really created this idea of of what a pleistocene hunter-gatherer life way could be Mm -hmm. um and all the different sort of technologies and the skills that would be involved in that and that is what really sort of blew me away Mm. um it did take me a long time to understand what a striking platform was from her descriptions of Flint Nappy. I couldn't get my head around that. <laughs> but then I did lithics. Um, uh, yeah, I did training in, in lithic technology and analysis for my master's. Um, so suddenly it made sense. But um, but I don't know. I liked, I liked the other thing about her books. Um, I guess for, it's the first two of her books I like, The Clan of the Cave Bet and The Valley of Horses, which are the ones that have the most Neanderthal mm. stuff in. Mm. And I think what's really striking about those is that the Neanderthals are not sort of clones. You know, they're very different in character. They're different in their, their skills. And I think that sort of is a thread of interest that's been there for me for a long time, um, is, you know, what, what was the reality of, of lived existence like? I mean, archaeology you know, um, you, you can kind of go for a positivist view of archaeology and sort of, well, but what can we prove? Mm. Um, and I did take that perspective for a long time. Um, and then I did a PhD at Sheffield and was introduced to later prehistorians who sort of are quite happy to to go, you know, slightly more what's interpretive. And, yeah. You know, um, mm. yeah, exactly. What's potentially possible? What is an inference that we can make that is you know, not too off the wall. And I sort of started to think, well, you know, why can't we do that? And and mm. other people before, you know, um, other people's work who had sort of begun to do that, um, like, for example, Clive Gamble with the Paleolithic Societies of Europe, that, that book was written a long time ago, still excellent book. And to some extent, he does try and do that. He brings together many threads in that book. Um, he tacks between different kinds of evidence to build up a picture. And I think that is... That's what excites me about the Paleolithic. Um, you know, sometimes I wish we had more material sources and, you know, a bit more organics would always be nice. Um, but at the same time, it's the challenge of dealing with that that paucity of material evidence when you compare it to the rest of our archaeology. Mm. But in fact, actually, the amount of stuff we have now about Neanderthals is gigantic. And that's what I wanted to do with the book to kind of just bring all that together that people may, you know, people know that the Neanderthals are exciting and they're in the headlines a lot, but it's the sort of the the minute, crazy details of the archaeology that we do now Mm. that people don't always know um, Mm. about. And and those, you know, when you bring all that together, the picture of Neanderthal life that we can produce now is quite amazing. Okay. And in that sense, it's interesting because I I think, have, yeah, having just heard you describe 
how you've described uh, the, this approach to Neanderthals. My memories of studying, in particular, uh, well, it's funny because I, I did a I converted from arc and amp to arc uh, in uni. So I started off with quite a grounding in human evolution in the first year, and then um, moved away uh, from anthropology technically. But uh, well, anyway, we all know it's complicated. Depends where you study, so on and so forth. But anyway, the point is. Um, when when I moved into into the second year and, and people were talking about Mysterian um, lithic technologies and there was lots of um, conversations about breakages on bones that we see in Neanderthal skeletons and and it felt compared to how you've just been talking about it it felt a little bit as though what what the goal was was trying to reconstruct almost a if we can just get hold of one Neanderthal you know if we can just <laughs> reconstruct one and and so the, the, you end up with this being. And often, I think, imagined normally as a juvenile male, unfortunately, mm -hmm. this being who is uh, simultaneously a rodeo rider, <laughs> uh, a spear thrower, potentially into art, possibly uh, either a slave or taking slaves from Homo sapiens, um, and uh, and also as well uh, a sort of a sort of to use a, an old. Um, antiquarian, I suppose, notion, a noble savage, potentially, but also one who we don't want to be too human. So maybe someone who doesn't quite have language. And so th th there's a lot of pressure to put on to one imagined individual. And so, as you say, it's probably better to, to spread it out a little bit <laughs> and, and to think about it different. But but how, how then would you encourage people to come to Neanderthals? And what, and what sort of, I mean, what, what sort of tidbits or what sort of flavours do you think should be thrown into that pot? Well I think one of the things that I hope people would take away from this book is that um, while we do talk about the Neanderthals mm. um, they were not like a monolithic entity no. you know the span of time that they existed for somewhere between 400 maybe 350,000 years ago they emerge and they disappear from the fossil record although not in genetic terms they're still here um but they disappear in terms of seeing their their bones and everything around 40,000 years so that's a huge span of time it covers massive um change in terms of climate cycles multiple phases of glacials mm. and interglacials the warm phases we're in one now um but also the geographic range that they existed um across was massive you know we tend to sort of pigeonhole them as european mm. um creatures you know um but and you know a lot of the archaeology is there and they may well have emerged in that setting although we don't know but actually if you look at just the the square mileage of where we know their sites were, they are more Asian mm. um, than Europeans. So they are West Eurasians, really, mm. um, as far as we can tell. So I think that's one thing that we should expect diversity from the Neanderthals. You know, we shouldn't expect it to all look the same. And equally, um, the all of that that range in space and time um, means that we have to think of them from the outset as adaptable mm. and flexible so this sort of notion that people have had uh, presented for a long time that's you know been in textbooks you know this idea that neanderthals sort of emerged invented prepared core technology or lavalwa as their sort of flagship technology mm -hmm. and then didn't do anything else that's totally false you know there is so much more um variety and richness in in how we understand what they were doing in different places at different times um and even creativity so i think that's 
that's definitely one thing that I think I would hope people take away. But also, as you said, the the question, you know, that I, I kind of address it towards the end of the book after kind of giving everyone all the, the cool archaeology, I then sort of say, well, you know, the Neanderthals are in a sense also being created by us constantly mm. because they they're not only a, a reality in in archaeological terms but they are a cultural phenomenon mm. um they were the first hominins that we sort of rediscovered in the 19th century um and you know they have stood for the other for so long and we still do that you know we have them as a foil to us yeah. the questions that we want to ask change but we still um, have a tendency to position them in opposition mm. to what we think we are. Mm. And, you know, the our desires for our identity, our fears, um, we project those. Um, and so although the archaeology changes and there is a feedback cycle between what we find and then how we imagine them and then how we imagine them also colours what we're looking for in the record, um, there's, there's definitely sort of an issue of of us being ready to see things mm. about the neanderthals that, that is a very interesting question um you know and what the what people in the 19th century were willing to conceptualize or even capable of conceptualizing is is obviously very different to today mm. yeah well and, and and hopefully what i was learning had moved on somewhat from the 19th century but uh, <laughs> It, it's interesting how, yeah, as you say, that that question has always been at the heart of, um, of 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 our approach to Neanderthals. And I mean, in the past, I've sort of uh, had a, a thought that, um, in some ways, Neanderthals are kind of very similar to to sci-fi in terms of how oh, we yeah. how we approach you know, other and humanity. And you know, there's a oh, reason yeah. that the Terminator scares the crap out of us because it's almost us, you know, but it's also not us. Uh, and and <clears throat> I suppose in that sense, then, how would you uh, like people to consider Neanderthals on that sort of spectrum? Should we should we be conceiving them as of them as sort of cousins, almost like us, but also not quite? Or should we not even try and go there I, i'm sort of of two minds about that myself mm. to a certain extent well i think i mean i am i mean it's impossible not to mm. because you know as as humans our mindset actually we are very much open to connection we want to connect that is mm. what archaeology is actually all about you know people want to connect with the past um and the neanderthals um were always potentially part of that and now we know for sure that you know um they were directly ancestral at least at some points in time through through interbreeding phases to us um i think once that once that was um was known it's only a decade ago that we've had you know that first evidence from the nuclear genomes that confirmed there was interbreeding but i think that um that shifted public view about neanderthals you know people had always been interested in them but i think people started to feel something deeper at that point um, well eddie Izzard did a, a thing didn't he he went round <laughs> studying this and he was oh i'm, I'm part neanderthal and and, and well, what was interesting there though was that it then became almost chic didn't it in some spaces people you know were of a, a for different reasons, mm. people are keen to know what percentage Neanderthal they are. And that's an interesting phenomenon. Um, but I mean, even for 
even for archaeologists, I think, some might say, oh, well, we weren't surprised that there was interbreeding. We always said there was. Um, but I think the, the majority <clears throat> models that were accepted was the, the out of Africa model that said early Homo sapiens, so us, um, dis began to disperse from Africa relatively late and replaced the Neanderthals with no, you know, real interaction, certainly no interbreeding. Um, so for, <clears throat> for people who were um, sort of happy with that theory the the interbreeding i think was something of a oh okay we need to need to change some of our ideas here so it was mm -hmm. it had impact in the archaeological world and um and in the public um but in terms of how we how we frame them um i find it I find it changes all the time, you know, and, and as it should, you know, if we are scientists, we deal with data, we have ideas. If new data appears, then, yeah, we should change our ideas. So, mm. I mean, I think for me, uh, writing this book involved, um, I mean, as I said, I technically my specialism is lithic archaeology stone tools and you know understanding that side of neanderthals that's what my phd was and all that um but to write this book i kind of had to you know go whoo big scale and look at all of what we know about neanderthals and really get into the depth of that and and then take out <laughs> you know the good stuff like distill it all mm -hmm. um and having done that a synthesis yes yes <laughs> sort of yes a, a finely distilled vintage i don't know um but I still don't know where I stand in some ways. No. It, I think it very much depends on what aspect of their lives you're looking at. Mm. Um, and also, at what point in time you, you're choosing to compare them with us. Mm. Um, because clearly, you know, 21st century globalised world looks nothing like no. Neanderthals. But there are plenty of, of indigenous hunter-gatherer groups communities cultures around the world who are living um you know it's very difficult when you say you don't want to say they are living stone age lives because that's not true yeah. and offensive yeah. and it's offensive but what i'm saying is is that that life way mm. is perfectly right and correct and that is successful mm. in that environment that those people are in they that's all they need that's that's fine that makes total sense um and so neanderthals were just as successful mm. as recent hunter-gatherers mm. in that world that they're in. Um, mm. So, you know, the question of, oh, well, would Neanderthals ever have come up with cities? I don't really know. But, mm. you know, cities are not what defines Homo sapiens necessarily. No. It defines one way of being Homo sapiens. So um, uh, if you look, if, the, if you then go back into the Paleolithic, even if you're talking about Paleolithic Homo sapiens, where you need to say, well, at what point are we are we trying to compare? Are we trying to compare later Upper Paleolithic people, um, you know, people who who were making, you know, creating Lascaux, mm -hmm. um, or are we talking about earlier Upper Paleolithic people who made Chauvet, like fifteen thousand years before Lascaux, rather, or are we comparing it with early Homo sapiens cultures in southern africa eighty thousand years ago they're all you know different ways of being homo yeah. sapiens and depending on which one you're choosing the level of comparability will change um and it's not just about the 
the preservation of, of different kinds of evidence. It's about what people are doing in different times and places. And none of those things are necessarily better or cleverer than anything else. Um, if we're willing to say that, you know, early homo sapiens in, in Africa who were interested in pigments, um, you know, so the Southern African sites like um, Blombos um, or uh, Diepkloof, where you have ostrich eggshells with quite graphically um, constrained designs scratched on them. Mm -hmm. We don't see that in Neanderthal groups, but equally, Neanderthals are doing a lot more with the bodies of the dead than those communities appear to have been doing. And it's like, well, if the Neanderthals had a, a mortuary archaeological record as poor as what we see in Southern Africa, we would hold that against them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or we don't hold it against ourselves. No. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I think mm. certainly there are things that we see in early Homo sapiens communities from 100,000 years through to 40,000 years uh, that they were doing that Neanderthals didn't do. And we never so far have found that in Neanderthal archaeology. But in other ways, like the general sort of uh, impression of, of their hunting ability, the kind of organisation mm. of across landscape scales or within sites, it's very comparable. Mm. So I think that's that's sort of the the mystery and the excitement of neanderthals is that you know there there are these contradictions um in what they seem to be doing but is that a question of capacity or just simply not needing to do those things um and a really good example of that is blade technology mm. um for for a very long time that was one of sort of the the little tick lists of supposedly modern behavior um, Neanderthals didn't really do blades, um, but as people paid more attention to the archaeological record, it became clear that actually Neanderthals could make yeah. blades. Yeah. They could even make little bladelets, mm -hmm. but it just seems that they didn't really want to. Um, it was not part of what was interesting them. Um, so that is an, a, a more subtle way of looking at it, I think. Mm. Um, there is something to do with cognitive capacity, but actually grasping what that is, is hard. And then you get more and more evidence coming and it changes the picture. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember one of my earliest um, exposures to the idea you know, higher education to the idea of human evolution was when... Um, someone he was a very bombastic lecturer he came into the room and sort of said you <laughs> hello yes hello you can you uh can you dive to three miles under the ocean and hold your breath for 20 minutes uh, no you can you eat soil you know and 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 poop out something that's useful for farming no you know you can you and, and essentially what he was demonstrating was the fact that that this notion of of um of comparing different creatures based on their particular special set of skills, whales and earthworms in those cases, for example, um, isn't necessarily fair. <laughs> you know, it's not fair to say, well, you're rubbish then if you can't do what a whale can do, or you, can, you know, if you can't do what a worm can do. Um, what does a worm do? <laughs> Sorry, just yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's so in that sense, yeah. Maybe it's not. It isn't fair to do some of these comparisons, but also they are somewhat irresistible. I mean, for oh, questions, yeah. questions such as, for example, language. And yet, I remember uh, reading a very interesting notion. I mean, or for example, when you look at things like you know, ideas like the, like the cathedral mind, things like language, you don't necessarily have to have the same 
rounded and series of sounds that we do, or what we might consider to be a complete set of sounds, in order to have language. You, you can mm. make clicks, you can do humming. There's all sorts of different ways of communicating that don't require what we value. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so... Uh, not not because I don't want you, don't want don't want us to go back into precisely more or less the same topic again. I suppose what what I would ask therefore is how would you describe Neanderthals to someone? How do you how, what what um, should people be imagining when they think of Neanderthals? I guess I would say they are another pathway in being a kind of human. Um, mm. If I mean in evolutionary timescales, they only separated off from us very recently and that is why we can interbreed with them mm-hmm. um and produce hybrid children who clearly had their own children you know they were fertile um <clears throat> it's it's more that that I mean there are differences certainly in in culture and also I mean physically they despite what appears to be um you know, quite a long history now of phases of contact with interbreeding going back probably before 200, 250,000 years ago, it now looks like. Mm. Um, yet we and they maintained our morphological differences. Our bodies didn't no. you know, merge. We, we, did, we didn't assimilate each other. Mm. Um, and presumably if that's the case with... Um, anatomy then the same thing is with culture you know there may have been some kind of of um sort of legacies culturally as well as genetic but we it's very very difficult to see that Mm. but in terms of the of the separate sort of trajectories i think they did largely there is there does appear to be a separation so we we were on different pathways i think um but you know clearly neanderthals were just as evolved as we were Mm. and they only disappeared a a blink ago in geological terms um so i think for me i would say if you place neanderthals in the the grand chronological scheme of human human evolution compared to the australopithecines um you know three million years ago plus and 3.3 million years is now the earliest archaeology we find the earliest clear evidence of stone tool mm. working is it's you know it's just hitting on anvils but it is is there that's so old you know and for for the neanderthals to have appeared they're very close to where we are you know so given that chronological recency i would say we should expect to be more similar to each other than different mm. um purely from that point of view um and at the same time, you know, we having only one sort of hominin still in existence, us, mm. um, we're forced to look for living parallels to our closest relatives, which is primates, um, chimpanzees and bonobos. And the amount of similarity between us and them is so striking that you kind of think, well, it's very likely Neanderthals shared a lot of those very basic traits in terms of sociability, emotions, um, complexity in, in communication, um, not in language, obviously, because chimpanzees do not use language, but all the other and, complex ways yeah. that they do communicate, the, the richness of their society and the tool use, all of that. If we're happy to accept that mm. in primates who, yes, they have been on their own evolutionary pathway um as well but i think we should be expecting 
Neanderthals to at least share many of the complex emotional sort of capacities we see in those other primates, um, which are the things that I think sometimes we're scared to allow Neanderthals, you know, like we know chimpanzees laugh. They don't sound like us when they laugh. They kind of, <laughs> they sort of cough, um, but they, they, they chill out. They tickle each other. They laugh. They play jokes on each other. The idea of Neanderthals doing that seems a bit like, oh, really? Can we let them do that? But of course they had to do that. Um, we don't know what their jokes were about. <laughs> but Pro Probably you know, poop, just like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I pushed him over, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, so I think that's, that's what's so difficult, that if you take it from a cold, hard evolutionary perspective, then Neanderthals must be vastly more similar to us mm. than to, you know, other members of the hominin family tree going back because they're so they only separated recently but sort of proving that archaeologically is is difficult and there are these differences um that that do appear to be genuine um and that will be you know used as potential reasons to then explain why our later history happened basically so i guess i would say that they're another kind of human mm um and that we should we should expect the unexpected with them but we should also not expect them to to necessarily be um vastly less than us you know um well and, yeah. and i suppose there's, there's an interesting quandary there isn't there and so much of the temptation is to presume therefore that they would essentially want to become us which is like i think is also one of the underlying problems with with this notion of of as you say what do we allow them to be or why it is that, yeah. we, that we sort of fear them in that sense is that this notion of 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 their trajectory either being the same or even different to ours is equally unnerving to some people well and also um, there's the fact that we like to assume that mm. we are the success story and oh you yeah. know that that mm. um they failed because you know there's no neanderthals walking around the world today although technically they didn't fail because they are in most living people today their genetic mm. material still exists so they are not extinct in that sense um but yeah i mean arguably you know how successful are we <laughs> if we have gone beyond the um the carrying capacity of the entire earth essentially mm. <laughs> um so i think yeah that's that's the question you like what on what basis are we defining ourselves is the question before we start to discuss them um yeah do you think that uh that people would spot a neanderthal in a crowd now, this is something which often yes. comes up i think but do you think it would I be easily so. easy to spot sorry go on i think so yeah mm. i mean what we you know, in a, maybe in a crowded place, not, but if you stood face to face with an Neanderthal, yes, I think they would look mm. strikingly um, different. Um, and we can see from lots of very recent, really nice analysis that, that even from birth, you know, a little Neanderthal baby in your arms would look a little bit different. You know, they, they didn't have a little chin, um, the, the head is longer. The, the front of their face is already starting to be more pulled forwards, um, so they would look a bit different. Mm. But at the same time, um, developmentally, they seem to have followed roughly a similar, very similar growth trajectory to ours. So 
a Neanderthal baby, you know, a six week old is probably going to be hitting that same milestone that our babies do when they, they start to light up and really look around and start smiling at you. You know, so you would expect sort of that cognitive and physical development to be the same in, in the early years, certainly. Um, but in overall, their physical uh, sort of differences I would would be clear I think from an early age and would they got more obvious as they got older as well you know they grew into it you can see like gangly teenage Neanderthals you know beginning to sort of get their full uh, features and and yeah although on average they are shorter than us I think mm. you meet if you met a Neanderthal you'd have been like oh yeah you know yeah. this is well, someone <laughs> I, mean, I think I think I once uh, read somewhere that that uh and again, it's one of those one, one of those weird things where we're taking individuals and we're mapping them onto entire um, species in that sense. But uh, this idea of there being very very strong musculature, someone said, you know, that it may be hyperbole, but you know, like a teenage Neanderthal may well have the, the similar arms to Rafael Nadal, this kind of thing. And well, yeah, uh, they, I mean, yeah, they they were hmm. robust, and and already we can see in adolescence that not only are the bones more robust, but certainly the muscle attachments are big. And you can, the impression is that even from a young, young age, mm. they were very physically active. Mm. Um, they were engaging in full on living, you know, the question of, you know, what is childhood is, is very different across all cultures today. And in many traditional societies, children do very physical work very early. You know, they will hunt together. Kids will walk around with, you know, knives and it's part of just normality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's um, that we see with Neanderthals, that they are certainly beginning to be, you know, um, just as 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 physically robust as hench <laughs> as, uh, as the adults quite early on. Yeah, yeah um what else then because because uh, so in the in the title of your book then this notion of kindred is interesting mm. kindred is in like literal family you know okay. on the the large scale of things um they are our closest relatives yeah or they were um in terms of chronology and the fact that potentially somewhere between 20 to even up to half of their genome may still be around spread mm. between different living populations but you know they they are they are the closest to us in that sense and um, <clears throat> and and you know we've only just sort of really beginning to unpick this the the extent of the interbreeding and it, it now seems from super recent research that the neanderthals y chromosome was ours and it was taken um you know through very early interbreeding pre 200,000 and and replaced theirs so the later interbreeding that's happening 50,000 years ago is with neanderthals who have homo sapiens y chromosomes so it's suddenly it's like wow. you know there is there's so many different connections at different levels and i think that's the idea i wanted to to just convey the um the fact that they are our relations, mm. basically, mm. Um, in at many different levels, it's it's that idea of of relationality, mm. um, really. Okay, and that's why I didn't want to just presume <laughs> what it meant. I was, I was trying to draw that out a little bit, but in that sense, then, what else within that that weaving interconnectability should we expect 
to or should we not be surprised by when it comes to Neanderthal? So, for example, I guess the big E's would be language, art, and music. You know, yeah. where, where do you where do you stand on that, or where do, where do you think people should 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 expect Neanderthals to be on those sort of those spectrums? Um, I think those those are the the three you know big things that people want to know about Neanderthals. You know, I can talk about hunting and stone tool technology and stuff, but actually, those are things people want to know. But I think. The, the the shift in what we see has been quite gradual mm. um but at the same time there are some sort of wow finds that have you know really blown people away mm-hmm. um in terms of sort of um evidence for for art um i don't really like using that word although it's in my title <laughs> that was that was the publishers but um but yeah <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I I I like to to use the word aesthetics more, um, yes. and I do sort of define exactly what I mean about that in the book. And it's more to do with the fact that um, if you come from a a Western uh, cultural context, then art tends to be something you think of as a visual medium that is finished, and yeah. you go to a gallery and you look at it, you stick it on your wall. Um, it's that's one way of understanding art, but it can be much more about an experiential creative process. And art can be something that is meaningful in the moment of its production mm. and less so afterwards. You know, um, if we if we look at sort of uh, what chimpanzees do, actually, they, they're quite keen on um, when you give them the the tools to, to make paintings and stuff, they, they're quite into that. They like it. They don't really care about it once they've done it no. quite often. Um, mm. they, they like the production. It's really interesting and, and they're really in the zone. Um, but, you know, they don't then go and put it somewhere to admire it later. Mm. So I think we need to be careful about what we are assuming is meaningful behavior in the first place before we even then say, well, can we see something in the archaeological record? So I think that's one question. Um, and then also, you know, it's a little bit like um, the issue with mortuary behavior, dealing with the dead. Um, <clears throat> what we are uh, sort of, the, the, the levels of proof that we hold Neanderthals to are somewhat different to what we uh, will allow early Homo sapiens archaeology mm. to, to be mm. you know if if you find a fossil shell with red pigment on it in a homo sapiens site um you'll be like oh yeah something symbolic and cool and exciting there um, with, yeah. yeah with neanderthals um you know people are a bit more conservative which fair enough um that's okay but when you actually look at the totality of the evidence for interest in pigment, um, interest in objects which have no clear functional explanation, mm. um, there is there's a definite trend I think that's emerged over the past three decades for there being some kind of aesthetic sense in Neanderthals. They're interested in things, and it makes complete sense. They have the same color vision. They're they're attracted to. I would think that they're attracted just as chimpanzees are and we are to bright colors, to, mm. to lustrous surfaces, mm. to um, making mark making. Um, and again, uh, I do I do discuss chimpanzee oeuvre, <laughs> the 
art of um, in the, in the book because it's very interesting that there are some parallels. You know that they like to to sort of produce marks and colours within defined spaces and things like this. So there are some. So, that, so there'll be sort of overlaps of marks or additional or, sort of almost. Or so, I mean, it depends on the individual chimpanzee mm. as well because they have their own styles. And you know, sometimes they'll do lots of lines coming from one source. It's like mm. a fan shape. We see that in the early Homo sapiens record in Africa and occasionally on some objects made by Neanderthals where they are incised and it's nothing to do with butchery, you know. Mm. Um, so there's sort of a, vague similarities there that, that perhaps are to do with an ancient bodily aesthetic interest in engaging with materials mm. which would just make sense you know um, chimpanzees are curious they they have bodies um, there is a, a very basic pleasure in engaging with materials um, so I think we shouldn't be surprised that we see that in Neanderthals the question then is if you do find um, things like a fossil shell that's been sourced 100 kilometers from a site with red pigment on sourced 40 kilometers away what does that mean? And we do have that. That's from an Italian site called Grotta Fumane um, about 50,000 years ago, Neanderthals 55. So what does that actually mean? Um, and that's where, <laughs> where the difficulty comes in. Um, and I think what we, what I've tried to do in the book and what I think archaeologists are have been building up a case over the past few decades is that when you do find these rare uh, examples, you can then use them as a means with which to interpret other sites with evidence for shells with pigment on, but those shells are not fossils, they're from food collection. You know, it, it starts to allow you to, to sort of uh, enrich your inferences for the broader mm. aspects of what Neanderthals are up to. Mm. Um, and another really good example is the uh, is their apparent interest in birds. Um, this is something that you know people have probably heard of. It's been in the headlines and things um, for a few years now. Um, all Neanderthals were collecting eagle talons or, or feathers, and some of the more recent um, uh, reconstructions of Neanderthals, you know, you see them with like feathers in their hair and stuff, and that's coming from these archaeological um, sort of sources. The the issue with birds is is again, you know. There are functional reasons why you're going to be interested in birds. They have meat. <laughs> um, and we can certainly see that Neanderthals were eating a wide diversity of, of bird species. They were going after game birds, um, but also raptors, birds of prey, um, and even tiny little birds like blackbirds we find mm. butchered ones. So they are eating loads of different birds. But are they doing anything else with them as well? Are they using those birds as a resource for something else and this is where the evidence gets very tricky and it's about how you try to rule out other things mm. so one of the the key sort of recent discoveries is that along with butchering the meat bearing parts of the body neanderthals also seem to have been quite interested in bird wings um and in some cases it looks as if uh, based on the cut marks that we find on the bones that they were skinning the wings taking off you know the skin with all the feathers or just taking those feathers off primary flight feathers the big ones they don't have thermal properties they're not going to be you know not going to be stuffing a sleeping bag with those um what are they for you know why would you go to that um that level of 
of processing of a carcass. And in some places, in fact, in Fumane, the same site, um, they are there's evidence that they were processing these different body parts or at least leaving them in different parts of the cave. There's one area where there's just loads of bits of wings. So something is going on. Mm. Um, with the feathers, it's we don't know what they're doing with that. But the other aspect is that there's also an interest in feet. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of meat on a bird's foot. You might make some stock with it. Um, but through very careful, very clever um, analysis of the cut marks, it's possible to see some places where we can even rule out that they were interested in tendons because in raptor claws, if you've ever seen an eagle foot, it's scary and they have gigantic tendons mm -hmm. which allows them to hold on to their prey. Yeah. And they can actually be very useful um, you know, in ethnographic contexts. There's, there are definite um, cases where, where uh, indigenous communities will, will use raptor tendons for, for different purposes. So you know, that's one practical explanation. But if you look at where the cut marks are on some of these talons, you can see that they were just slicing through the talons, that, that, uh, through the, the tendons rather. They're not interested in that. It's the, it's the actual talon that mm. they are after. Mm. So, and at that point, if you start to say, oh, well, you know, it's a handy pointy thing, that starts to become special pleading because they are surrounded by other pointy stuff they could yeah. use. You know, they, they've, perfectly capable of making stone pointy things mm. all the time they're also surrounded by extremely sharp bone splinters from their normal carcass processing so i think at that point you one has to say okay something else is happening mm. in most one has to ask what is it telling you Yeah, I mean, and, and <laughs> sorry. <laughs> in terms of sort of finding these really interesting case studies that allow you to go beyond that, yeah. um, until very recently, we just had sites with bird talons and interesting. Then there was a site, uh, or rather there is a site that's actually a 19th century excavation, so the context is not brilliant, but there are a number of um, eagle talons from that site they were analyzed and some of them were found to have little polish facets on them as if they had rubbed against something else hard mm -hmm. it was proposed that maybe those were parts of a necklace for me i don't think that's well supported because we don't know if those talons were actually ever associated with each other in a layer it's not a great context unlike um really cool work in southern africa where there's lots of shells that were found in a small area they had lovely polished facets that, and you can actually experimentally reconstruct how those tiny bits of polish formed because they were strung in a particular way so that's fantastic we don't have that for the claws no. but what we do have is just recently one of the claws from that site has had um analysis underneath a mineral film on it there is pigment and more than that, it's a pigment mix of two different kinds of pigment with a bit of charcoal, I think, and some clay. So once you have two substances that are unusual, that do not have a functional sort of aspect together, just like with the fossil shell and the pigment in Italy, yeah. then you will be able to look at the other sites where you only have talons and think, hmm, okay, maybe there really is something going on here and we're just, you know, only seeing the surface of that. So it's that level of sort of detective work mm. that you have to go to with Neanderthals before 
you can be confident in saying, okay, there probably is something aesthetic, perhaps socially meaningful, going on with bird talons um, in, in different places. So it's, it takes this extent of complex argument to be able to support claims for some kind of aesthetic sense. But I do think it's there. In, in, and as you say, in a way which, which isn't required when you come across, you know, no. <laughs> stuff in a, in a homo, homo sapiens perspective no. or con- context so I, and and to be fond to be honest i'm not i'm not i mean I don't, I don't know if you have any conclusions about that but maybe it's not maybe the the, the beautiful thing here is actually t- to simply be able to lay out that evidence and say this is this is what we find yeah. because because i guess if you want it would be somewhat crass to go down a literal sort of oh you know it's for costumes or it's for art or it's for but, but th- these sorts of questions are i guess what's going to set up a future answer or a future uh, notion about yeah. this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mm. mean, I, we don't know what those claws no. were for. Um, mm. You know, polish can form in different ways, but I think what we can say, uh, certainly about the fossil um, shell with the red pigment from Fomani, um, mm. you know... Oh, and also, that, sorry, just, 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 just to be clear, that stuff hasn't just come together by accident. You know, no, because, because no, of those no, different sources. No, yeah. there's no pigment in that cave. No, that no. fossil shell has been picked up. You know, a Neanderthal has been presumably walking about. They, we know they're interested in stone as yeah. a resource massively. Mm. So for me, a Neanderthal having geological curiosity is not surprising. Um, presumably, they come across this uh, this this geological deposit in the landscape, uh, investigate it, notice that there are fossil shells. Um, they may have been from a community that uh, were operating at a wide enough range that they knew what the seashore was like, that they were familiar with the sea and uh, and seafood as a resource. Mm. And that may have been something that's curious. For them as people, you know, who have no means to transport tons of stuff around the landscape with them, even though it's small, it's a choice to have carried that. Um, And then you add the pigment, which itself is sourced from 40 kilometers away from the cave somewhere else. You know, at that, it's only on the outside of the shell, not the inside. Um, The shell itself also, um, microscopic analysis, uh, it's got a little hole on the outside, but um, there are indications that there's a little bit of polish on sort of the mouth of the shell and on this other side of the hole. So the researchers suggested perhaps it had been threaded or strung or something like that. But it appears to have been something important enough mm-hmm. to have been kept, handled, had pigment applied. Was it lost? Yeah. You don't know. It's very small. Could have just been lost. Um, you know, you can't really go much beyond that, except you can say, well, um, as a species who are totally familiar with using material objects in their daily lives all the time, mm. and as a very social species, which we would expect Neanderthals to be with complex emotional relationships within that group, would it be surprising if they were using materials as part of those relationships, you know, as 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 a means of of uh, building or maintaining relationships, just as we see chimpanzees do, they play, mm. they they give each other bits, you know. Mm. Um, 
they have an interest in materials, not the same way as we do, but Neanderthals, I would expect to be, to be closer to the kind of thing that we're doing. So perhaps it's an object that is that's meaningful. Um, is it a gift? Is it something you make for a child? Mm. I don't know, but something is going on. And, and I suppose it, in, in you know it's one of the first things that that, that anthropologists I think uh, examine because it's such an interesting case study are things like for example the potlatch this notion that actually just the basic gathering of materials is important for for us and in that instance the ceremonial destruction of, of excess is is important and so it, any gathering of material is itself an additive. Uh, yes, it's process. accumulation. It's accumulation, yeah, exactly. Um, and therefore it's bound to have, or sorry, it's likely to have some sort of social impact if someone accumulates, as you say, things from different places, brings different them together. Different yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we know as well, I mean, from from the Crepina site with that talon mm. where there's this pigment mix, there is another site, a Spanish site, where you have shells which are probably from food waste mm. but they have a pigment mix on them as well mm. and in that case it's got um iron pyrite in which has real aesthetic visual potential you know it's shiny it's fool's gold basically mm. um so they are interested in mixing things and then there's this whole other realm where you start to to need to connect different aspects of what neanderthals were doing aesthetics with technology mm. when you get composite tools so you know tools made of multiple parts where you have a handle an adhesive and then a stone mm. or just the an adhesive handle in fact um that's interesting in itself that has massive cognitive implications in itself it's this mm. idea of, of bringing different products together to make something new Comfort. that was sourced from yeah, yeah. Sourced, sourced from different piece places in the land but in an italian site just recently found again we find um an adhesive which is a mix of pine resin and beeswax so that's another case where they are creating an additive substance they are mm. experimenting with material properties um, and although presumably that's not a visual aesthetic experience the smell of beeswax and pine resin you know the neanderthals lived in a multi-sensory world just as we do mm. and we you know we, we sort of often, as I was talking about with aesthetics and the, the idea of art being a finished thing, well, music is an experience. You listen to it in the moment, but also smells is so important to us and we forget that really. Yeah. But when, when you think about it, you know, smell has massive potential to trigger memory, things like this. So there's no reason why Neanderthal aesthetics had to purely be about visual things either. Mm, and and the more... Yeah, the more you do this, sort of writing the book, the more you start to see connections between different aspects of what they're doing and, and the interest in materials and qualities of materials is there throughout all the different things they do in their lives, mm. um, including stoneworking, also hunting. They're hyper aware of different species, of the different body parts in an animal, um, you know, so there's there's this commonality that you start to see across different sort of realms of what they were doing well and it's interesting is it not that more or less everything you've described there is the sort of behavior that i would describe to a primary school class when it comes to upper paleolithic behavior from our ancestors in europe yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, it's not it's not it shouldn't be well i would humbly submit it shouldn't be that controversial to suggest that these human-like creatures were very human-like <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, I suppose just very briefly, uh, I'm just conscious of, of, of your time uh, um, this morning, but just two, two final questions. Um, first of all, how did we get there? How did we get to the point where, um, where these creatures have had to, these other humans have had to um, have such stringent advocates in order to to replace their abilities their cognizance their their humanity um do, do, do you think this is this is purely a uh, an uh, an idea of being suddenly exposed to this other and then having to to reconcile it with previous for example religious beliefs or do you think there's something a bit more fundamental about 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 suddenly seeing something that wasn't previously known about I think it's two things. I think clearly, you know, um, the older you get in time, the more challenging archaeology is. Mm. And, you know, what 19th century prehistorians could even dream would be possible from a site, you know, what you can get out of it. Mm. They had no, they would have had no idea of what we can do now. Mm. So the ability to say things that I say in that book is because of you know 160 years of developments in archaeology so that's one aspect but definitely there is um there's a clear uh sort of bias in wishing to position neanderthals as other and it it emerges from a a very obvious racist 19th century worldview Mm. um where People living hunter-gatherer lives were had been encountered for two, three centuries, and roundly dismissed as, um, you know, savage as in animal-like, yes. um, you know, and they were the nineteenth century. You know, the Neanderthals emerged right in the middle of um, people merrily creating, you know, tiered classifications of living peoples um and saying oh well, zoos, in fact oh you know, yeah, yeah. You know, these mm. people are more primitive they literally branched off before white people did so mm. they're more primitive you know or they're, they're more more to do with orangutans whatever um that was not just an intellectual pursuit mm. that was being used to justify not only initially sort of slavery but when that was um, the legal conditions were changed for that. It was just replaced by colonial, um, you know, rule and oppression of the subject of, races. Exactly, yeah. and it's no coincidence that um, that the uh, Aboriginal peoples um, were most often used as yeah. comparisons with some of the early Neanderthal fossils because they were deemed to be the lowest of the low because they were hunter gatherers and and you know they had very dark skin and all of these reasons um and people were so blinded by that that some of the early scholars were you know happy to dismiss aspects of the anatomy that didn't support that um so i think that understanding of neanderthals as being expected Although nobody expected the Neanderthals in some ways, they were surprised. But once that, that, that's we, the title for your next book, nobody expected the, <laughs> under, the, the, the Neanderthals. Yes. <laughs> once once we sort of got a head around their existence, they were immediately used mm. to, you know, or, or fitted in to this notion of superior kinds of humans and lesser kinds of humans. We were quite happy to do that. Mm. Whereas, you know, the question is interesting, and I, I 
do you talk about it in the last chapter of the book? Why why was it not the case that that Neanderthals as another kind of um an ancient form of human, why did that not stimulate people to see all of living people as a unified thing? Why did that not yeah. have the opposite effect? Well, because the people who are, you know, in charge in in those sort of the, the upper uh, levels of um, the intelligentsia, if you want to call it that, that's not really appropriate, but um, they, they didn't want to see that. You know, I'm not... Some of this is unconscious, of course, but archaeologists in the late 19th century were quite happily providing you know skull measurements from egypt to feed into very early eugenicist ideas yeah. so that link is very clear yeah. and neanderthals are part of that mm. um you know and, and when some of the early neanderthals in the early 20th century were being found some of the more complete remains you know there's accounts of of them sort of people saying well could they smile because you know we know um black people have lesser range of facial expressions than white people you know mm. and so it's it's not that mm. that there wasn't this intermeshing there really was mm. yeah it's and actually it's funny enough um um growing up i remember uh reading um in high school i don't know what book i was reading but, but i was reading something where um where it was pointed out that at one point people for example people in wales were having their heads measured because for the, for oh, the same reasons you know right, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh you for you people out in the wilds of you know so and so you must be lesser yeah. lesser people um on that note then uh you mentioned before we started recording that towards the end of your book uh incomes industrialization and mm. mining and things like that what on earth is the industrial revolution doing in a book about neanderthals <laughs> well it's it's a weird thing because you know um there's, there's this interesting question of what do we what are we ready to find why did we find neanderthals why did we realize what neanderthals were in the 19th century and geology had been sort of coming to terms with the, the horrible age of the earth for you know 100 years or so um ideas about evolution were coalescing you know um and there had been early sort of primate fossils found mm. but the the engine for some of these early discoveries um was not people enthusiasts going and scratching around in caves although that was happening it was also um the the expanded sort of um fragmentation of the landscape itself through quarrying you know mm. the the german the first uh neanderthal that was recognized the neanderthal discovery um from feldhofer cave um in germany that was uh uncovered because of gigantic quarrying that was going on to feed industrial demand um for uh, limestone and marble and things like this mm. Um, and then you have other cases where, you know, railways were being built and things were found. Um, and um, in Gibraltar, um, which was a, a skull that was actually found before the Feldhofer one, but it wasn't recognised, that was only discovered because, you know, the British were there quarrying to build military staff um and the officers who were um more educated and interested in natural history had a little scientific society and presumably a quarry person spotted that and found it but that's also the interesting question we know the names of some of the the people slightly further up the food chain but not always the names of the people whose hands first found these we don't know the name of the quarry person 
in Gibraltar or in Germany. Mm. Um, you know, so that's kind of interesting. Why, although um, there are some hints that people didn't always know what they found, for example, in the German case, um, the quarry, uh, the quarry workers were basically blasting out this cave, uh, the Feldhofer cave that was full of clay, and they were used to finding big bones, animal bones. But it was the the quarry um, overseer, whose name we do know actually, um, who realised that they weren't bare bones. So I'm interested. How did he know that? Mm. You know, was he a member of this local natural history society who he contacted, and then that was then it was passed on to, to this guy that, that was in charge of the uh, Natural History Society, and then he passed it to the anatomist in Bonn. Mm. Um, you know, but but that for that quarryman, his personal interest, he had enough knowledge to recognise that this wasn't bare. So there's all these different strands in terms of um, the, the 19th century context and the different social context within things, within which things are found. But we can certainly be sure people did find Neanderthal fossils yeah. in the deep past. Yeah. Um, just don't know about it. So, well, and it is interesting, isn't it? In that sense, that 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 at a time when there was, this, as you say, this very um, big push to fragment the landscape, to expand out, was on rail, to so on and so forth. We suddenly were discovering new things about our our uh, our past and our an ancestors and our shared ancestry with other humans, but also. The, the the very fact that it's rooted in this notion of there being a tiered humanity um, is fascinating. And as you say, the, the fact that the, the discoverers weren't necessarily the people who uh, who got credit. It's well, it's based, isn't that kind of the story of Neanderthals? They just don't necessarily haven't haven't necessarily had the credit that they deserve uh, <laughs> for as long as we've known them. Um, where 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 do you see um, Neanderthals, as it were, going in the future? Do you think do you think eventually we'll get to a point where Neanderthal isn't a byword for, for you know for someone who is a, a thuggish, brutish person? I don't know because you know it, it doesn't show much signs of disappearing. I have to say, no. um, it would be nice to think that uh, that this book might. <laughs> might change people's minds same i hope it does but um no I, I don't know i think people people are um are going to be willing to to use that as a as a sort of an insult for some time to come um i think also they're referring in some ways to past understanding of neanderthals because i think most people um or certainly people i come across who are not archaeologists um you know they they do have some understanding of, of some modern ideas about Neanderthals you know they'll say oh yeah they weren't they weren't as stupid as we used to think were they mm. um or you know oh I've heard that you know they did things with their dead and mm. so those ideas do filter in mm. um but yeah I think the 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 notion of a Neanderthal perhaps is now actually sort of a symbolic idea I don't think people necessarily if they stopped and thought about it would um would associate that with some of the modern ideas about Neanderthals Okay, so there's the idea, and then there's the yeah, the reality. Yeah, okay, <laughs> cool. Um, well, uh, uh, we are going to draw this to a close. One final question for you: If you could tell people anything about Neanderthals, any interesting little idea or tidbit or, or thing that you particularly personally love, what would it be? What What do you want people to to know that uh, they don't currently know? I guess, aside from all the really cool things I've already talked about. <laughs> Um, I would say that what what I love is the is upending the idea of Neanderthals as you know 
creatures of the ice mm. you know this they've they've had this this sort of frozen world behind them in in people's minds for so long um but you know they they lived in oak forests they walked around under dappled leaves you know they heard woodpeckers and they were creatures of interglacials just as much as we are and so i think the neanderthals can feel quite distant sometimes but but that sort of current world that we're in is is really in environmental terms not so different and you know rethinking about how that neanderthals of the forest you know that Mm. that is a completely different idea and how they we have evidence that that they may well have had to change how they lived which makes sense Mm -hmm. to live in a forest um but i think that's what i would like people to to take away that that they were not they didn't really like hyper arctic super cold conditions um they liked grasslands and they could deal with that but yeah um woodland neanderthals sunny sunny times eating tortoises on the mediterranean coast you know <laughs> you know I, I once heard a description that a tortoise to a neanderthal was like a boil in the bag supper <laughs> i like it so horrible isn't it so horrible um but also so yeah so so completely relatable um I just, I just feel, I always just imagine this sort of, oh no, this tortoise get, oh, oh, and then just, like, just being <laughs> carried away. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time this morning. Um, oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, if, uh, if anyone below has any particular questions or comments, please do, um, uh, please do type them out and um, uh, either um, I'll pass them on or, or who knows, maybe Rebecca will, will take a look at them and answer them herself uh, in, uh, in written form. But it's been good. And, and um, I suppose if there is if there is another book, if there is something else exciting or something like that. Oh, there I, is a book too. Oh, I excellent. started writing it today. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. It, there's your title. No one expected the, the Neanderthal. Um, but <laughs> but uh, thank you very much. And I'd also I'd love to obviously check in with you in the future if that's okay as well. Yeah, great. Okay, great. Um, well, until next time, uh, do take care, everyone at home. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Bye. Bye. This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosuit Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com